All right, we're um, in the life of Paul, and uh, let's look at two texts today. I'm going to start in the text where, where we uh, were last time, which is Galatians 1, where Paul gives us some biographical material on his life, and then also Acts 9. And these two texts actually describe the same time period in Paul's life, uh, with the only difference being that Acts 9 does not include that desert time in Arabia uh, piece. So... We'll start with Galatians. Galatians 1, if you have a Bible like mine, this is found on page 943. We love to stand for the reading of God's Word, so if that's something you can do, would you please stand? We begin at verse 13. It's Paul talking. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it a lot to think about there. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, and I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being, So I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but instead I went into Arabia, into the desert. Then I returned to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem and got acquainted with Cephas. Who's Cephas? Peter. I stayed with him for 15 days. And I saw none of the other apostles. Just interesting to think about. Just saw Peter, none of the other apostles, Only James, the Lord's brother, and I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. And uh, then I went to Syria and Cilicia. Um, So let's also now turn to Acts 9. This is found on page 891 if you have a Bible like mine. And I'm going to start reading halfway through 19. My Bible has a subheading, Saul in Damascus in Jerusalem. This is right after he got converted. Paul spent several days with those who were disciples in Damascus. Now once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God, and those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful, and he baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. It's at this point where I believe he goes to Arabia, and then from Arabia he returns to Damascus. And then after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan, and day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers, his disciples, took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. And when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him. And how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. 
And when the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. It's God's word for today. You can be seated. Okay, let me just give a little uh, review on, on, on Paul's life. And this is going to feel maybe a little bit repetitive, but I still think it's important that we uh, get some of this uh, in our minds because we're in this series believing that, that Paul's life is important. And um, I'm going to just kind of do this by looking at some clauses that Paul uh, says about himself because I think they tell us a lot about his upbringing. Uh, the one clause is where he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And we understand this to mean Paul, who's raised in this uh, prestigious Greek city, Tarsus. Uh, it's the intellectual center of the Roman Empire. It's a city that oozes everything Greek. Greek language, Greek culture, Greek thinking, Greek way of life. When Paul says he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, he is saying not just that he learned the Hebrew language, but that he was raised in a family that did not become Hellenized. That in every way, they remain true to God. Another clause that Paul uses about himself, he says, I'm a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee. And we've learned that a Pharisee is someone who takes purity very seriously. And we're not just talking sexual purity. Of course, that might be at the top of their list, but, but it's purity in every area of life. And it's not just personal purity that, that the Pharisees were concerned about, but it was the purity of all God's people. The Pharisee is very passionate about purity. Paul also, in another place, says, I was a zealous Pharisee, or a zealot Pharisee. And I don't, I mean, we look at the word zealous, and we kind of think, oh, that's another word for passionate, but, but zealous uh, in first century is a technical term. It's a technical term that means violence. And I know that's hard for maybe some of us to reconcile, like how can someone who's so committed to God and the ways of God uh, also be violent. And the zealots were so committed to purity and, and purity within God's people that they felt justified to act violently against their own who weren't living the way God called them to live. And this is a flavor of Paul's upbringing. Add to that that he's on the fast track to success. He says he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel is the greatest rabbi of that day. That would be the equivalent of saying, I went to study at Harvard or Yale. And not did he only sit at the feet of Gamaliel, but also he said there, I, I was, like we read today, I was advancing ahead of all my peers. I was first in, in my class with honors. And... Then he graduates, and he goes right into the halls of power. So you have to picture this young, 
confident, brash, highly intelligent, highly trained individual who the elites of Paul's day are recruiting. The Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish Supreme Court, the high priest himself, uh, they recruit Paul to do their bidding, which is to take out Christians. Christians at this point in the game are those Jews, and they're seen to be this virus that is contaminating Judaism. So you need to almost see Paul um, working um, from this place, using all of his passion, all of his talent, all of his zeal uh, to this end. And there he is. He's hunting down Christians. And I haven't highlighted this, but here's something that you need to know, because where we are today is we put Christians and Jews in, in completely separate buckets, but at this time, they're all in the same bucket. The first Christians are Jews. They're not going to church. They're still going to synagogue, and they're still going to the temple, and they're still celebrating the feasts and all the holidays, and they're doing this with other Jews. In fact, you, when you start to piece together like a text like Acts 6, 8, and 9, where it talks about Stephen, and uh, Stephen belonging to this synagogue, the synagogue of the freedmen, where he's preaching Christ. And the synagogue of the freedmen, as it's stated in Acts chapter 6, is, is where the Greek-speaking Jews attended. It was for them, and it specifies from Alexandria, from Cilicia. Cilicia is where Paul is from. And then when you consider, okay, this is probably the synagogue that Paul goes to. I mean, it absolutely is. Stephen, Stephanos is a Greek name. Paul and Stephen go to the same synagogue. They have known each other for years. And at some point in the game, Stephen gets infected with Christ and then starts preaching Christ in his synagogue. And it's his synagogue of which Paul belongs that takes him to the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, where he's sentenced to die. And who's commissioned to carry this out? Well, whose feet do they lay their coats at? It's none other than Paul. And you feel the, 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 just even the proximity of what's going on. And Paul is doing all of this. Not just thinking that he's pleasing the elites of his day. But more importantly, he thinks he's pleasing God. Until he's on that road to Damascus, and Christ tracks him down, and he doesn't know it's Christ, but he knows that he has just come face to face with the Lord because he falls to his knees, and he says, who is it, Lord? And then this voice says, it is Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting. And I don't know, I, I still think he might even have Stephen's words, dying words, ringing in his mind. If you, if you remember when Stephen um, was stoned, um, all of a sudden he, he looked to heaven and he said, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of, of God. 
And it's like in this moment, I think Paul is just so cut to the heart. Stephen is right. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Lord. And so it's, it's at this moment that Paul's whole world is, is blown up. I mean, his understanding of God, his understanding of himself, the trajectory that his life is on. I mean, all of this is shattered because his eyes have come to be opened to Christ. And what you need to understand, that Paul is, a, is someone who understands the text, so his eyes aren't just open to Christ, but if this Christ truly has come, that means something amazing for the time in which we live. We now live in what the prophets refer to as the last days, the messianic age. And so what Paul does is he immediately then goes into the desert because this is where God's people historically go when they want to hear God, when they want to just be stripped of the things of the world and, and, and they want to get God's voice. And Paul, too, has to relearn this text that he's mastered and he, he needs to understand it in light of Messiah. It must have been just an amazing experience to reread and relearn the text, seeing Messiah all over the book. Um, he also needs to lay down his call, and get a new call from God. And so not only do I think he just goes to the desert, but I think he goes to a specific place in the desert. Um, the person that he has modeled his life after uh, is Elijah, and that's where Elijah goes to Sinai. So I see Paul going to Sinai because Elijah, too, went to Sinai for a specific purpose, to quit, to resign from his call. In fact, when Elijah gets uh, to Sinai, God actually asks him, like, Sinai, or Elijah, what are you doing here? And Paul says, I've been zealous. I've been violent for the Lord. I'm done. And God receives his, his, his letter of recommendation, but then puts a new call on Elijah's life and says, okay, Elijah, you're leaving being zealous for me, and now you're going to go find a man named Elisha. You're going to pour your life into him. And Elijah becomes a disciple-maker and raises up the next generation of prophets. And Paul, too, lays down that call of being zealous for God. And God puts this new call on his life. Paul, you are my instrument to tell the world about Messiah and that the kingdom of heaven is here. And so that's what he does. And then, and then uh, uh, Paul returns to Damascus. And he steps into his call. He's preaching Christ. He's preaching Christ in the, in the synagogues. Look at verse 22. Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, this is something to think about. Paul is now doing the very thing that he put Stephen to death for doing. And he's getting treated the same way Stephen was being treated. Look at the next verses. After many days, and this is not a great translation, it's after a long time had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill Saul. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night, lowered him in a basket, through an opening in the wall. Can you imagine this? 
Can you see Paul? Getting in a basket. All helpless. And being lowered down. We have to see the picture. Because in Paul's day, it, it was common knowledge that the highest award that was awarded a Roman soldier was the soldier who first scaled the wall to defeat the enemy. And that was who Paul was, man. He was the first guy over the wall with all his zeal. And it's not that he has now become a coward. This is a man who has found Christ. The lion is still a lion, but he's living like a lamb. I think there's some application here. Christians today, especially who are living in, in our context, are so tempted to be lions and to attach ourselves to lion kind of work, and we have to be careful. The kingdom of heaven is not Republican, it's not Democrat. It's not, and it's a ministry of reconciliation. And I think that that is very worth saying this morning. Now, after this, Paul uh, goes to Jerusalem. And again, when you're reading the text, one of the most important things you can ask is, keep asking why. So now, why is Paul going to Jerusalem? Well, here's, here's how Paul's mind would be thinking. If, if, if Jesus is the Messiah, and of course, that's not an if to Paul, um, that means Jesus the Messiah has come, and we have now entered the Messianic age. That old age is gone, and the Messianic age is here. And, and the prophets over and over again state that Jerusalem will be the epicenter of the Messianic age. I mean, this is found in several places, but let me just read a couple of these texts. One from Micah chapter 4, in the last days, it's the Messianic age. The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established. As the highest of the mountains, it'll be exalted above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it, and many nations will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways that we may walk in his paths. And the Torah, the law of God, will go out from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Or Zechariah 8, where, where um, the prophet Zechariah has just laid out Messiah. And when Messiah, this king priest, this priestly king comes, many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. In fact, this is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by his tassels, and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. That's why Paul's going to Jerusalem. It's the epicenter. In fact, this is, this is where the, the disciples are. This is where the, the, the Christian headquarters are. And 
Paul says something very interesting in that text we, that we read in Galatians in verses 18 and 19. He says, but I went there, I only spoke with Peter. And he says, I, I promise you, I'm telling you the truth on that. Oh, but I also spoke to James, with James, Jesus' brother, for one day. Strange. But here's what, oh man. Imagine for 15 days... Peter and Paul together. I mean, I see, I see Paul just sitting at Peter's feet. Peter, tell me everything that you know about Jesus. What was it like to, to be with him for three years? Tell me about every single day. And in and, and those 15 days, um, Paul got all the stories that we have in the Gospels uh, probably downloaded to him. I can, just, I can just hear Peter saying, you know, the first day I met him, I was out, I was uh, out there fishing, and, and the crowds were so huge that Jesus came up to me and said, do you mind if I use your boat? And I said, sure, use the boat. And Jesus got in my boat, and he just started teaching from the boat. And the things that he was saying, I mean, it, they were so stunningly awesome that when he came back to me and said, here's your boat back, all I could do is fall on my face and say, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. And he looked at me and he said, Peter, come follow me. And in that moment I got up and I left everything. I followed him. And Paul, you should have seen all the miracles. I mean, it was miracles all the time. But there were never miracles to like, show off like who he was. There, there were always miracles done to teach and to explain and the crowds and the people that flocked to him. At some point in this conversation, Paul the Pharisee, I can say, so is Jesus kosher? <laughs> and I can hear Peter just saying, yeah, he was definitely kosher, but it was in such a different way. In fact, Every town or village we go to is almost like Jesus would look for the most unclean person he could find. He was literally looking for the most despicable sinner there was. And when he'd find him, he'd say something like, can I come to your house? Can we hang out? And I can hear Peter just saying, the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, they just loved Jesus so much. And Jesus loved them. In fact, it's the people he ate with. In fact, Paul, you're, you're, you're kind, you're, those Pharisees. You should have seen how they responded to this whole thing. They despised him. You should have heard what Jesus said to them one time. It was almost cringe factor. He's sitting there cursing them out. Damn you guys, you hypocrites. I can see him just saying, you know, for some reason we missed it. He kept telling us, especially towards the end, that he, he came to this world to be rejected and to suffer and, and to give his life as a ransom. And it's hard, like we hardly ever heard it. And it, we, we didn't see it coming because the people loved him and they flocked to him. You should have seen the last week of Jesus' life. I mean, it was all-out war. It was war between Jesus and the guys you just worked with, Paul. The temple leadership and the Sanhedrin, the high priest, I mean, they were just out to kill him every day. But that's why he came. 
I mean, to, to just to be a fly on the wall for those 15 days to hear Peter and Paul talking about Jesus must have been incredible. But notice verse 26. It says, when Paul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. Now, that verb tried there is, in the original language, in the indicative, which means it's not a one-time event, but the indicative is this continuous thing. And why am I telling you all this? It's not that Paul just tried once, but Paul is continuously trying to the word there we have is join, but, it, but, it, but it's deeper than that, to unite with the disciples. It's like, guys, would you let me in? I'm on your team. And instead, he's cut off, he's pushed away because they're afraid of him. Now, this is not something that Paul is used to Paul is a guy who's used to being sought out, and not just sought out, but by the people in the most important positions, the elites of his day, those are the ones who are seeking Paul out. I mean, he's on this track to becoming the ultimate insider. Now he's being rejected. And this just goes from bad to worse. Look at verse 29. Then it says, he talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they also tried to kill him. Remember, those Hellenistic Jews uh, are those Greek-speaking Jews. So he's going back probably to the synagogue of the freedmen uh, where these Greek-speaking Jews gather. And he's like, okay, guys, I'm back home. And, And let me tell you what happened. You know, Stephen, what he said, it's actually true. I saw him with my own eyes. And they reject him. They want to kill him. These are his friends. These are people that, that he knows, and, 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 and they know Paul. In fact, the only reason why Paul's life is spared is because some of his brothers in Christ come to him and say, Paul, you know, maybe you better just go home. And they literally escort him to Tarsus, to live in mom and dad's basement. And we know what that is today too, right? Here comes some 30-year-old home to live with mom and dad. In fact, uh, if you do all the the hard work, this is not just where he's going to be for a couple of weeks. He's going to be there for years. And, and I don't know, like, like what you're thinking, but, 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 but I want this stuff to start sinking in. Because this is a guy whose life was just on the fast track to success. His, his life is, is, is moving up at such um, a fast pace. And all of a sudden, now it's going down being pushed out, striking out, being pushed away. I mean, this ultimate insider is now becoming an outsider. Is this what I get, God? 
Is this what coming to Christ is all about? I, 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 I've seen you. I've been called of you. I've been called of you to do specific things for this. And I even think the text is even uh, going to rub more salt in this wound because if you look at verse 31, in fact, it starts out with this word, therefore, therefore, in light of the fact that they got Paul out of the way, it's not that just that the church went on, the church thrived. Now, how long of a time period are we talking about? From the time that he's converted to going to the desert, returning to Damascus, going to Jerusalem, and then ending up at Tarsus. This is where I did my work this week. Scholars say it's 10 to 15 years. Ten to 15 years of striking out, being rejected with probably the majority of that time being spent in Tarsus, living with mom and dad in their basement. And I know some of you are there today because I had several people come up to me after both services uh, Saturday night and this morning just like, this is exactly where I am. You've come to Christ. You've given your life to him. God's even spoken some, some clear things into your life as to what you're supposed to be and do and be about in terms of call. And it's come at, at some cost. You've lost some friends. You, you've also um, lost some status maybe in life. And, and then the thing that you're stepping into that you're so sure this is what God is calling you to, it's just like the gears are grinding, you're striking out, and, and for some of you, you feel like you're, you're at a complete dead end. But take comfort in this. This isn't just you, it's, it's Paul, and it isn't just you and Paul. Uh, it's Abraham. God comes to Abraham, puts clear call in Abraham's life. Abraham leaves everything for this call. He gives up everything for God only to wait, 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 wait. Not weeks, not months, not years, decades. God, what's going on? Joseph, Joseph has has clear call in his life. I mean, that's what those dreams are about. Those dreams are God saying that one day people are going to bow to you. Of course, he's all young and cocky and bragging about these dreams, showing off his immaturity. But, but all, what does Joseph have to do to, to get to that realization of that call? He's sold by his brothers. He's put in a pit. He's placed in prison. We're not just talking days or years. We're talking decades. David, anointed to be the next king. I mean, you talk about call in a person's life. And all of a sudden, the next stuff you read is him having to run for his life for the next five to seven years, living in caves. Isaiah, <laughs> When, when, when God commissions Isaiah, uh, God says to him, Isaiah, whom will I send? And Isaiah, it's like he raises his hand. He says, God, here am I. Send me. I'm, I'm in. And God's next words to him, okay, listen. You're going to teach people who have ears but don't, eat, don't hear. 
They're going to have eyes, but they don't see. Your ministry is essentially going to be one of failure. See, I don't think any of us would, would draw it up this way, but this is the way God over and over and over again draws it up. And, and see, today we know the rest of the story with Abraham and with Joseph and David and Isaiah and Paul, and we see how God uses these men mightily. But here's what we do. We just run right away to their successes and to their accomplishments without first seeing how they got there. It was through pain. It was through turmoil. It was through striking out. It was through being rejected. God tells Ananias, I've chosen Paul as my instrument. And my call in his life is that he would suffer. Because here's the way it is with God. The one that God uses mightily is also the one whom God hurts deeply. Every now and then I, I read this to my own soul. And I'll be honest, I know what I'm going to read right now for some of you is going to be such good news. And for others of you, it's going to depress you. Because you're still fighting against the way of God. You want it to be the world's way. And I read this to my heart several times, and the reason I was reminded of it this week is because a guy in our church said, hey, Rod, you have that poem? And it reminded me of that. And in fact, after the gathering this morning, he said, you know, there was one time where I read this thing 10 times in a row to my heart, and it set me free. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that the world should stop and be amazed, then watch God's methods, watch God's ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay, which only God understands, while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks, when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he is about. There's this time in, at the end of Paul's life when he's trying to pastor this church in Corinth. And uh, he's faced, <laughs> Paul's faced a very unique situation because this church in Corinth is obviously uh, a, a very immature church. It's, it's, it's like one of our mega churches today. It, it wants its pastors to be these superstar celebrities. They're like, okay, Paul, before we listen to you, you got to prove, man, that you're one of these superstar celebrity pastors. It's like, Paul doesn't even know what to do with this. It's like, do I play that game with them or not play that game? And, and when you get then to 2 Corinthians 11, um, which is a strangely awkward text because Paul so badly wants to be heard, and he knows the only way that he can be heard is if he can prove to them his celebrity status, and so he starts to play the game. But then he catches himself, and he says, wait a second, I sound like a fool right now 
And then he adds another thing, I sound like the world. This is a game of the world. Because then what goes to his mind is this humiliating moment in his life because he knows that as a true Christ follower, the only thing he should ever be boasting of is just that, humiliation and weakness. And that then sets the table for what he says in the next chapter, in chapter 12, where he talks about, okay, you want me to boast, I'll boast of my weakness. But you ask, what is that embarrassing moment? And if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and look at verse 32. And before that, he says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And then he says, in Damascus, the governor under King Eratos had the city of Damascus guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall. And I slipped through his hands. His life, in that moment, was reduced to being put in a basket, all helpless, and being lowered down. And if you want to know the path that Paul is on, there is not a more profound picture than that. He's not going up. He's going down. He's not becoming great. He's becoming small. It's not about celebrity and fame anymore for Paul. It's about humbling and humiliation. And this path that Paul is on is the path of Christ, which is why Paul will say, follow me as I follow Christ. And Paul will often write in his letters, he says, walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel or, or live in a way that's, that's worthy of Christ. And if you want a, a picture of what that looks like, just look at Paul in a basket, all helpless, being lowered down. Because Paul knows that depicts Christ's path. Paul's the one who writes Philippians 2, where he says, Jesus, who did not hang on to his glory, but he emptied himself, becoming a human. And the class that Jesus took was that of a slave. And, and he died the most humiliating death at crucifixion. I mean, you talk about lowering. When Christ was lowered from the comforts of heaven. He gave up the status of being at his Father's right hand with her pleasures evermore. Paul says he emptied himself. It's not that he ever stopped being God, but he, he, he gave up all the glory, or think about it, every moment of, of, of every moment. Millions upon millions of angels worshipped him. And as some people translate this, he became of no reputation. I mean, that, that so depicts it. I mean, if you lived during the time of Jesus and you travel a long way hoping to see him, when you got there, you'd have to say, okay, now which one's Jesus? Could someone tell me who Jesus is? Because it's not like Jesus had some special glow. I mean, he's just an earthling, an ordinary earthling like all of us, a son of Adam. You know what Adam means? Adam means dirt. 
It means mud. Because when God created Adam, it's, this is how uh, Genesis wants us to see. It's like God put his hands in the mud, in the dirt. And Christmas is a time of year where we don't just celebrate the fact that God put his hands in the mud and the dirt, but that he became the mud. He took on the dirt. He took on our nature so that he could remake us. And Paul says Christ's lowering didn't even stop there, but, 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 it, but it kept going where he became the lowliest earthling of all. He became a slave. In fact, I'll never uh, forget one of my professors when I studied in Jerusalem who was a rabbi and we were looking at the, the parables of Jesus and he said, I want you to know, because he was so moved by this, he said, no slave in the first century would wash anyone's feet. Even that act was beneath a slave. But your rabbi washed his disciples' feet. And even Peter said, Jesus, this is, you're going too low. And Jesus says, no, this is who I am. This is, this is what you are to be, Peter. He became a slave. He gave up all his rights, all his entitlements, his rights to glory, his rights to his personal happiness, his rights to live life as he pleased because Christ became obedient to his call and his call was to, to go low and to give up his life. And this is where Paul says his humiliation ultimately leads. He says, even death, death on a Roman cross. Because Romans, they didn't just kill people, they humiliated them. Because the cross was the most torturous, humiliating form of death that they could come up with. And when you stop and think about this, that when God looked down on the earth and, and, and thought, what is it that I can attach myself to that will most show the world who I am and what I'm about? Ah, a Roman cross. I will attach myself to a cross to say this is who I am. And Paul says, Christian, you are to have this attitude. This is the path. And some of us today feel entitled to even the smallest things, like we have a right to this and a right to that. Some of you right now might be in a marriage and you're thinking about leaving your spouse because your spouse doesn't make you happy anymore and you deserve to be happy. And all I ask, on what basis do you have a right to be happy? Some of you right now are, are, are losing certain things in your life, uh, things that you've worked hard for, and in your mind you're like, I, I earn this and I have a right to these things. And you're all bitter and angry and I say, but on what basis? Some of you right now are taking revenge on, on, on people who have hurt you. 
because you have a right. I say, on what basis? Some of you are, are, are living the most selfish lives, and at times it's, 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 it's reckless selfishness because in your mind, you're thinking, I have a right to be happy, and therefore, you think you can live that way. I say, on what basis? I mean, on what basis can we be jealous? On what basis can we be angry? On what basis can we be bitter? On what basis can we think we're superior to anyone? On what basis can we gossip about someone? On what basis can we live selfish lives? Look at who God is and what he's done. And see, when Christ found Paul and Paul found Christ, Paul didn't just find Christ, but he found Christ's path. A path that was so different than the path that he was walking. He found that the way up is to go down, that the path of fullness and wholeness is by emptying yourself, that the way you get rich is by giving it away, that the way you really experience happiness is not even to live for your own happiness, but to live for the happiness of others, that the way to greatness is through humility, that the way to true freedom is by becoming a slave, that the way you really find yourself is by by losing yourself, that the way to experience real life is through death. It's his way. Have you found Christ? Are you walking his path? This is why I love Paul. It's not because Paul's some Christian celebrity, it's because he gave up celebrity. It's not because Paul is this, this otherworldly Christian saint. It's because Paul is a, a person just like us, broken, vulnerable, struggles with sin, knows his weakness. Well, some of you have just been coming to Crossroads, and I don't know what you see when you, when you come to Crossroads. Um, I don't know what you see when, when, when you see someone like me or another pastor, but I can promise you this, that if Crossroads is anything for the kingdom of heaven, it's because of brokenness, humbling, and humiliation. This week, um, the 20-somethings asked Libby and I to, to, to speak on our marriage. And so we did, and I mean, when we tell our story about our marriage, it just, it, it brings my own heart to that place in, 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 in our life where God humiliated us. And I have family members here to attest that anything that I could describe in terms of how bad our marriage was and how broken it was, they would all say, Rod is not exaggerating. This church, crossroads, first two years, we weren't just humbled. It was humiliating. I mean, to get a call from the local church that supposedly planted us and to have to have a secret meeting with one of the elders only to be told that 
um, we want nothing to do with you. You're not one of our church plants. And then all the gossip and all the things that were said. It was humiliating. It's what God works through. It's his way. The one that God is going to use, he's going to hurt. Because this whole thing is not about going up and having more. It's about going down and becoming small. And that's why we have communion this morning, because communion is a time when we can look at our lives and, and, and see how, oh my goodness, even though I know Christ, I, I'm so going the world's way. It's all about me. It's what I can get. It's about how high I can go and the things I can have. And that's the beautiful thing about repentance. The joy is we can acknowledge that and say, God, I'm coming back to you. I'm coming back to you, Christ. Your body broken. Your blood shed. And this isn't just stuff we believe, which is why Jesus gave us a meal. Like, he wants this to be fleshed out in our own flesh and blood lives. And so he says, come to this and and take it in. Eat the bread. Drink the wine. Take me in. So God, right now I pray that this would be a time of repentance. God, that you would give us the grace and the courage to see where we are off your path. And God, that you would take us back to your path. Because uh, Jesus humbled himself and was humiliated to such a degree, God gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that Jesus is Lord and the way that we will lift him high is by going his path. God, would you bless us and protect us as we go your way. May you make your face to shine upon us and be gracious to to us. Would you lift your countenance over us. May your Holy Spirit fill us that we would have your peace, that we could bring the peace of Jesus Christ the chaos of our world. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week, everybody.